Hi and welcome to the 14th episode of the Machine Ethics Podcast. This month we're talking to Michael Ludden, Director of Product at IBM Watson Developer Labs and AR and VR Labs. We're talking about Michael's work experience leading up to IBM, what is Watson, using Watson in your VR and AR projects, film and AI and culture, imagining a future with good AI. If you'd like this podcast, you can support us by going to patreon.com forward slash machine ethics. You can find us at machine-ethics.net. Please share with friends and rate us on iTunes. Enjoy. So thanks for joining me on the Machine Ethics podcast, Michael. Um, I'm joined this week with, or this month, should I say, with Michael Ludden. Um, hi. Hello. Hello. First of all, thanks for having me. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so my name is Michael Ludden. Um, I'm the director of product for a team I started called Watson Developer Labs. Um, mm-hmm. Part of our mission, one of our big initiatives, is AR VR Labs. Uh, you'll probably get into some of that. Um, and uh, I'm based in San Francisco, California, in the United States. Great. No, you know, it's, it's so fun fact if you're not from California, you yeah. don't know the area. San Francisco has a microclimate. I live in San Francisco. In, uh, microclimate and it's freezing outside, but what? inside my apartment it's a little warm. I'm working from yeah. home today. Because so I had the window open. Isn't it true? I'm like a, it just across the bay, it's like sometimes completely different temperature, right? Yeah, I mean, yesterday I drove to Sacramento, the yeah. city's the state's capital. It's about an hour and a half east, like a uh, hundred or two mile, a uh, hundred or so miles away, and it was a hundred degrees and I was sweating. But I had brought this big heavy winter coat because in San Francisco it's like fifty and windy <laughs> with a wind chill. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. crazy. Um, wow. Let me just close the window really quickly. I'll be right back. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, Michael, bef- um, so you have a really interesting sounding job at um, IBM. I was just wondering, kind of like, what positions you had before you got to IBM, and and kind of what that position entails <laughs> now, really. All right, um, it's a long <laughs> and winding path. So I guess I should probably, uh, I'll try to give you the very high level Cliff's Notes version. Sure, sure. Um, I never thought I'd be in tech. I, I travel, you know, I moved around within the United States as a child. Uh, Illinois was where I was born, then I moved to West Virginia when I was nine, Indiana when I was 14, Los Angeles when I was 16, finished up high school, mm. and I went to school at UCLA for musical theater, <laughs> not probably what people would expect, um, yeah, and nice. I, I did a starving artist lifestyle in, in LA for a while, but through it all, one of my big sort of joys and, and escape uh, mechanisms was uh, was was being kind of a script kitty hacker. You know, I always mess around with my video game systems, whether that was uh, patching uh, ROMs, buying special cartridges, or mm-hmm. hacking the system so I could play Japanese uh, games that weren't uh, normally translated into English yep. with some user's translation or whatever. Um, and then as I got older, it got a little more advanced. So in college and after, I, I, I taught myself Flash, uh, CS2, CS3, and I made websites for my artist friends, uh, musicians who needed uh, the websites, that was mm. hard work and not very fun. Uh, and I realized very quickly that, um, you know, I, I learned about the pain of an engineer when someone just requests a feature and they think it's very simple, but it, it just makes your mind explode with frustration. Yeah. Welcome to um, my so life. After, yeah. After <laughs> that, I was, uh, right. After that, I was, um, I was uh, doing some tech show hosting and whatnot, but still just kind of finding my way. And, mm. uh, and I, I had a friend at HTC and he basically told me I should take his old job. He was getting promoted. Yeah. Um, and I needed money, and I was I was a little surprised at how much they would pay me, and it seemed very simple. And I was already a bit of a phone nerd. The first Android phone had come out, uh, and HTC had made it. 
Uh, so I took the job and I fell in love. I, I really, uh, like I found that I was more technical than a lot of the folks uh, on the team. It was a product marketing position, um, but they started sending me around to speak uh, in release with some of the salespeople and I got to know um, what was at the time a, a just beginning developer relations organization. Really, two people were there already only. Um, yeah. And I begged them to let me join. I told them I'd learn on the job and that they'd get results and et cetera, et cetera. So after about six months of lobbying, they, they allowed me to join. I think I was the fourth person to join. Um, and there, I, I really kind of went deep. I took boot camp courses from a guy named Mark Murphy, who's an excellent teacher, writes these books called Commons, where, and he teaches out of New York, based out of Philadelphia, uh, Android. Um, mm -hmm. And so I learned Android on, on the Eclipse ID before Android Studio. Yep. Um, and then, you know, after about a year of that, I learned about the different aspects of the industry. I, I touched code. I did community management. We did some press announcements. I did some on-stage stuff. Um, and I worked a lot with partner companies to try to get them to integrate, um, you know, the, the HTC Sense SDK, as it was known at the time. There were tablets and, and there was a mm. pen and you could um, leverage the pressure sensitivity by using it. So trying to make that case to... Uh, startups and then uh, Samsung came calling and and I joined them and I, I became head of a developer marketing over the course of a couple of years I ran the first Samsung developers conference that was kind of the thing that I that I pushed uh, through the company and, and made happen and that's still sort of going on in the yearly cadence mm -hmm. um, then I joined Google uh, and, and at Google okay. I was a, a developer marketing manager lead for Google Play yeah um, I was working on an educational product uh, which which got rolled into Google Chrome uh, later, and um, and I was working a lot with with uh, with product managers, and at the same time learning a lot about pure marketing, uh, because I didn't actually interact with developers as much as I thought I would uh, in that role. Mm. And I thought, wow, I really want to move into product product management. This this is great. But what about building products for developers? And it just so happens that uh, at the time, uh, some folks from IBM had reached out to me from IBM Watson specifically and told me about a role that was exactly that. Um, so uh, after a little while, I, I decided to join, um, and then I, uh, I I I got a promotion and built a team that I'm calling Watson Developer Labs. It's a small, yep. scrappy organization that uh, that builds problems. Oh, sorry, builds problems, builds <laughs> solutions for problems <laughs> developers space. Hope ideally with IBM technology. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Great. So you're, so you're kind of embedded in the IBM Watson family, but you're, you're actually making new stuff off the side sort of thing. Well, so I'll give you an example of, of a piece of product that we built. So uh, the VR speech sandbox that was used by Ubisoft in their Star Trek bridge crew mm. game, uh, which was a, a, a VR first. It's a licensed Star Trek property. It's an online collaborative team, you know, bridge commander kind of game. Um, and... Uh, and with and, and the Watson feature that they built was an interactive speech interface that lets you speak with non-human team members on the bridge. If you let's say you don't have four people to play with, yep. maybe you have two or three, you can still give commands in natural language the way you would talk to a normal person. It accounts for variation in how people say things, um, and it's really kind of an extensible and impressive system because it feels local, and it's a first for a number of reasons. But what they did was. Uh, first of all, I just kind of like a, a nerdy trekker went up to them at a, at a virtual reality conference in LA, told them about the VR speech sandbox, which I'll talk about in just a second. Sure. Um, and they used that to, to build the, the interactive speech interface. So the, the, the VR speech sandbox is a, is a toolkit that we built. It's basically sample code on GitHub, freely available, open source. Anybody can try it. It wraps two services that you need for this system, Watson speech to text and Watson conversation which is our graphical user interface for chatbot training. 
Mm -hmm. um, inside of our Unity SDK to make it really easy to, if you're a Unity developer, prototype uh, basically interactive speech interfaces with Watson. Yep. So I think there's yeah. a, there's a couple of like um, terms that we should unwrap just really briefly. Yeah. Yeah. So um, <laughs> so Unity is like a games engine. So um, Unity uh, you could make um, predominantly 3D games. You can also make 2D games, but people also use it for making crazy artworks or architects use it. Um, it can be used for all sorts of 3D work. Um, and your SDK is kind of like the software. Uh, software development kit. Yes, that's it. Yeah. So you're producing Sorry, like libraries of um, of code that people can take away and just implement uh, simply in their projects. Um, that's right. Yeah, awesome. So I've actually tried some of the um, IBM Watson um, speech text uh, recently in the run up to this just to just to see if I could get to grips with it and it is actually really yeah. really fast to get up and running um yeah it's one of the longest running services it predates Watson so that's one of the ones that I'm actually more confident saying yes this is very feature rich and mature and reliable right and it's pretty accurate as well yeah is there a couple that you wouldn't say that then <laughs> <laughs> not on this podcast okay cool well you know another time maybe um, <laughs> but there's there's a whole suite of like different um technologies which you can just get up and running with from the yeah. watson is it the kind of the watson um is the name for the family of technologies because it strikes me watson, that so, yeah i mean there's a lot of uh confusion around what you know what is watson what's not this is sort of a helpful definition that i'd like to tell people um I consider, well, a lot of people internally consider Watson Developer Cloud, which is what I, you're talking about, that yeah. houses our suite of services mm -hmm. that are developer-facing, that are instantiated mostly as APIs, yep. um, and, and these, these cover everything from speech to text to, like I said, Watson Conversation for Chatbot Training, to visual recognition, mm -hmm. uh, to other services that do deal with data manipulation, personality insights, natural language understanding, translation, document conversion, all these sorts of things. That's called Watson Developer Cloud, and if anybody wants to Google it, you can just Google it and, and you'll get the landing page. Um, that's considered core Watson because mm -hmm. it's it's the thing that's kind of ground truth, real stuff, right? That's yeah. available that you can kick the tires on. But also importantly, uh, because Watson is also a brand name that other Watson groups within IBM use. So if you talk about Watson Health, they have a couple of products that use pieces from the Watson Developer Cloud along with their own stuff. One of them is Watson Oncology. That's mm. one of the products within Watson Health. There's a, you know, there's there's um, there's Watson IoT there, which has uh, pieces from the Watson Developer Cloud. So there's a lot of different Watsons that and I'm not even familiar with 100% of them. It's very hard. There are yeah. a lot of initiatives and, and 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 things that sound interesting. Some of them have products attached, some of them are more solutions oriented. Mm. Um, but a lot of them borrow from Core Watson, which is Watson Developer Cloud. And that's that's what we focus on in my in my team. Yep. So if you think of it as like a smorgasbord of technologies, like a grab bag, okay, here's speech to text, here's visual recognition, take it and do stuff. We build something, a, a level above that, where it's like, here's a more fully featured solution, like an interactive speech interface, which is what you want from speech to text and maybe what's the conversation. Yeah. But yes. we've made it, packaged it up and made it very easy to access that from something like Unity, for example. Yeah, exactly. So you're kind of leveraging the Watson cloud, as you're saying, and packaging up in a useful form for other environments or kind of other um, places that people might want to use it, whether they're kind of public right. or... Increasing the wheels because, you know, it's nice to have a smorgasbord, but if you don't know exactly what you're looking for, it's also nice to have some use case-based solutions to, to just grab.
and try. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, so what are you working on at the moment? Is there anything fun that you can tell us? Oh, uh, there are a lot of things that I, I'm not yet able to talk about, but sure. if we talk again in maybe September or October, I will be. Um, but in terms of the ones that I can, uh, we've got a number of other uh, things coming down the pipeline for our ARVR Labs initiative. Mm-hmm. And we've also got a number of things that uh, I can't talk sp- too specifically about yet um, uh, pertaining to chatbots. Um, and a few other, uh, those are some of our, our, our larger initiatives and a few other things I can't even hint at. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of stuff that developers can check out right now, there are two different versions of uh, the, the aforementioned VR speech sandbox, um, one for Cardboard and one for Vive, and we're coming out with more soon. But they're all on GitHub. Um, the code's freely available. There's a how-to guide. Our goal is to get it in the hands of, not just that, but yep. but all these sorts of little bits of code into the hands of as many developers as possible. Um, and uh, and so the, the, the real thing with the Star Trek thing was to just highlight that fact. Everything we do is meant to be repeatable, self-service, freely available open source. And if there are suggestions, maybe not even in the realm of, of VR and AR, but maybe in, mm. in terms of industry, maybe fintech, health tech, et cetera, um, we'd love to hear those as well. Yeah, yeah. So they should get in contact with you. Yeah, please. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, I mean... In my mind, the, all the Watson kind of family of, of tools, um, each one is individually some kind of AI. Like it has some sort of algorithm which is generating code from data and creating a model, and, and that's what we call AI generally these days. Um, would you agree with I, I that? I give a whole talk on this. Yeah, I give a yeah, whole yeah. talk. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I would. I, yeah. I like to define, do some terminology defining. Sure. Um, so when we talk about artificial intelligence, it's sort of becoming an umbrella term similar to cloud or big data, right? Yeah. Like what, do they, what do they actually mean? They, they mean a lot of things. But um, specifically what I think most actual AI implementations mean right now um, are using what you mentioned a moment ago, machine mm-hmm. learning algorithms. And this, this, is, um, this, this could also be considered narrow AI in the sense that uh, if you're familiar with uh, AlphaGo, Google's... Uh, machine learning algorithm that uh, beat the world's best Go players, or before that, IBM's Deep Blue that beat the world's best chess players. These are systems that uh, use unsupervised learning techniques to, uh, like, at their core, machine learning algorithms are um, systems that learn on their own. So you, you point it in a direction, you say, I need this result, and then it will get there. And you're not always 100% certain how it does. Yep. It's a bit of a black box. But that's essentially, I mean, this is a gross oversimplification, but just, just to kind of get the point across without going too into the weeds. Mm-hmm. Um, that's essentially what you know, AlphaGo and DeepBlue did. Uh, and, and, and the difference between, and that's narrow AI. So that's not general AI. When, when people think of AI, when they think of like machines taking over the world, they think of general AI. They think of something that's sentient, something that can do a lot of different things. So Hmm. Uh, a, a hallmark of general AI is it doesn't just do one thing, right? So AlphaGo, you'd never go to AlphaGo and say, hey, I need some dating advice because AlphaGo would have no idea how to even interact with you in that scenario. Yeah, sure. Um, at, at the same time, you would never talk to Siri and say, hey, Siri, what time is it? And have Siri say to you, I'm tired. I was sleeping. It's rude of you to wake me up. Don't ask me right now. Because oh. Siri has agency. She's not sentient, right? It's a kind She's of a shame, she- though, isn't it? Because it would give her <laughs> those more personality. Well... Yeah, just build in like some 
Yeah. Sometimes when it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just every a random roll, like every now and no. then, it goes. Oh well, you look at the, like, you look at the time. Come on. I I listen to a lot of podcasts, and one of them recently was about lines cues. Pardon me, cues. Mm. Um, I know the British are are very uh, adamant. That yeah, the sorry. It's cues for us. Lines are something true. different. No, it's true, and you do queue yeah. up better than most places. Um, but uh, but basically, you know. The fact that you have a line makes food at a restaurant seem more attractive to people, like planned scarcity kind of, or like the illusion of, of exclusivity. Maybe there's something there with Siri, like if Siri just is too good to talk to you sometimes, maybe you're like, wow, this is the best digital assistant ever. Anyway, I digress. Um, so it's kind of delving into the human psyche. Yeah. Actually, it's, yeah, it's too bad. Um, all right. So then back to the point about artificial intelligence. Um, yeah. So those are those like machine learning is, is generally what we're talking about, which could be considered narrow AI. We're very far from general AI, uh, which is to say something that's conscious that can make it that has its own agency, mm-hmm. makes its own decisions, maybe decides not to interact with you when you want or how you want, uh, but is basically kind of more alive and can do different things. Yeah. Um, and that's also the, a moment when that occurs is what's known as the singularity. That's generally what that that means. Um, do you think that, so, um, I mean, on that line, do you think yeah. that we could have more of a general intelligence which isn't sentient? So, like, um, let's say, for example, let's package all of the Watson Cloud up and maybe add another 10, 20 different kind of things that it can do and then put them all together. And isn't that more of a general purpose artificial intelligence system, right? Um, but it doesn't uh, mean it's necessary, necessarily a person or it's sentient or it's you know, um, going to compete with us guys. Yeah. Do you think that's a different level to, um, well, yeah. I know what you're saying. And I would, I would say that, that what you're talking about is something like what, you know, a Google's assistant or, or, or Microsoft's Cortana, Siri, mm. or Amazon's Alexa, these, these digital assistants are, they're not, they're not alive. They're not intelligent. They do do different things though. But, but importantly, they're made up of multiple, systems and multiple machine learning algorithms to do different tasks, right? So yeah. it still is at its core an app with an architecture and that architecture involves machine learning. And and we have that today. We kind of have that mm. today. Um, but that's still humans predetermining how that should look and then tweaking it if users don't like it. That's not Siri deciding what Siri wants to learn yeah. what she wants to be, right? That That's the key difference. Um, but, but in terms of just a quick point about Watson, this is a, a distinction I always try to draw because I don't think this information is out here as much as it could be. And that's a failing of IBM and not anybody else, really. Right. But if you were to package up all the services, and there's between 14 and 30, depending on how you split them up, just ask a different marketing person. They'll tell you yeah. a different number. Um, if you were to package them all up and do something with them, what that might look like is not something like Siri. It would be something like uh, whatever use case you're looking at. An example would be uh, Lucy. There's a marketing... Uh, in uh, marketing insights dashboard called Lucy mm. that was partially funded by an initiative at IBM that isn't there anymore. But basically they took our services, wrapped them, even used some of the demo uh, infrastructure, the front end stuff to build a marketing insights dashboard. And you can do that. Um, but they literally just added feature after feature using service after service. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and then are maintaining that. But Watson exists a level lower from, what you would consider a, a digital assistant level. Um, and even what my team's building is is a level lower than that, right? So you could take an interactive speech interface, which my team built, yeah. and add other pieces like that. 
to build a digital assistant. Or you could do, take speech to text and use somebody else's bot training interface and do whatever and build a digital assistant. Um, but that's not, you know, it's not like, like, like Watson isn't Voltron. You know what I mean? You're not going to put the parts together and it's going to become yeah. this super amazing robot. <laughs> it's not going to go AWOL. Uh, yeah yeah right. so i mean i guess on that um is that something that um i think you it, there's some stuff on your twitter feed that you have an interest in science fiction futurist novels <laughs> yeah. and and yep. all that sort of stuff so i mean does that have an influence in any of your work or, or how you talk about um ai or, or maybe how you think about the future of ai and where it's headed it absolutely does it absolutely does um a profound impact because it's opened my eyes. Uh, you know, in America, in the United States, um, probably similar in the UK and in, in, in Western Europe, um, we talk a lot about the robot apocalypse and all of the bad aspects yeah. that could occur, right? What if what if we have robot overlords? What if everybody loses their jobs? Uh, what if what if all you know Deus Ex Machina happens? Um, and and you know those are valid concerns. I don't want to be dismissive of them, um, but at the same time, like. My my fiance is Thai, and she grew up watching a Japanese show called Doraemon. Do you know Doraemon? Doraemon, Doraemon. Mm, I'm not familiar with that one actually. I don't think so. So it's a cartoon about mm. a cat from the future that comes back in time to what was present day in the 80s or 90s or whenever it came yep. out originally. And all these kids are like, "Wow, this cat's so cool!" And the cat proceeds to whip out all these amazing gadgets and toys that are so inventive. Like for example, he has an anywhere door, so he takes it out of his pocket which is an endless pocket that can hold everything in the universe, takes out the door, you open the door, and it'll take you anywhere you want to go. That, to me, is someone envisioning a future where a technology, maybe not specifically AI, but definitely technology, can provide us benefits akin to magic. Um, and as we know uh, from Arthur C. Clarke's famous quote, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Yep. And I think that, you know, I would like to see, okay, so let me tie this back to a fear that I have. If you look back through at least American history, um, we have always invented our own future in cinema and, and our public collective consciousness and imagination first before mm. it became real real stuff. Like think think about Star Trek and how the how we have tricorders in our pockets all, all the time right now, right? So yeah. I, it, we've very consistently imagined the future that we want and then made it reality. And I'm worried that we're imagining a post-apocalyptic dystopia too often. That's the only yeah. thing we're imagining where I would like to see things happen in the future that are futurists and maybe touch on the effects of technology where maybe that's not even either the focus or the focus is more about how a machine learning algorithm cured cancer or like, you know, yeah. we were able to solve death or eliminate poverty or, um, you know, make sure that we eradicated world hunger and made food more distributed e mm. evenly. You know, these are benefits that can really come from machine learning algorithms if, if we would only point to our collective consciousness and minds towards them. Yeah. Yes, the fears are there. And the best way to avoid them is not to pretend like a progress isn't going to happen. It, it is. It's to corral that progress in the minds of the collective, you know, consciousness mm. of popular culture yeah. into positive outcomes, not negative ones. I th unfortunately, I think it's one of those... Um points where a good story usually has some sort of um yeah. Yeah. Uh, antagonist which creates you know um risk or, or some sort of a failing and you know totally. the, the story of ai we did 
a really good job and then the robots were really great and then the end is this is like yeah. one that we we tell a lot because it's uh... and and i like black mirror i really like black mirror mm, i like yeah. uh Deus Ex machina i think it's a, a really interesting movie um i like i don't it's not that i don't like movies like this i think it's a obviously compelling storyline it's very interesting yeah i like the matrix as well of course i like these movies i love the matrix actually but I do think that, you know, Doraemon and other, other at least a lot of Japanese shows uh, imagine technology as not the antagonist, but a piece of the story. And the antagonist can come elsewhere and the technology mm. can essentially supply the magic. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? Um, so I think I think there is compelling content we haven't explored. It's not just killer robots want to destroy us. Yeah. I think one of the in on that line, I think I, when I watched Moon for the first time, I don't know if you watched Moon. Yeah. It was, yeah. it was. It's a really great movie, and I was I was waiting for the robot in the movie. So there was a, a robot helper <laughs> to kind of go mad uh -huh. and take control, um, two thousand one style, and it never yeah, happened. Yeah. And the robot was just so super useful throughout, except for yeah. our cultural consciousness in the setup to that movie expects it to be the robot that is the well, problem. That, that's also brilliant cinema because, and you know about my background, I, so I I, I mm. studied cinema and I. And Joy Cinema. That's also yep. brilliant cinema because they put the robot in there and made it seem ominous. Even the voice they chose yep. to make you and distract you by making you think of of the of um sorry of of two thousand one. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Twins is actually something very different, which I won't spoil here. Go watch Moon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Go watch Moon. Um, yeah. So it's playing with people's expectations because obviously we've got Terminator. We've got all these movies which are, are projecting a different idea of how these technologies can play out. And like you said, I yeah. think we definitely could deal with more um, our cultural artifacts which deal with technology in a positive light. Mm -hmm. And then we can move and, towards it, right? And by the way, another show recommendation for your sure. audience. I really, and, and some people might think this is controversial if you're in the artificial, in the, in the artificial intelligence space. Yep. But conceptually speaking, in terms of the exploration of consciousness, um, Westworld is amazing. I, I recommend it. Yeah, I, I think I watched that all the way through, and uh, it was it's quite confusing, um, yeah. but it, it really does pay off. I mean, it, it is confusing, but towards the end, it, it pays off, and if you read some stuff about what certain things mean, mm. like, I, mm. it was one of those things where I finished it, and I'm like, I enjoyed that, but I'm not sure what it all meant, and then it took me a while to digest, and then it was very profound to me. Yeah, but, but, but it's fun to watch anyway, honest. right? Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, so... <laughs> In a Westworld type uh, situation, let's say, um, do you see IBM um, or? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, so here we go. You can just say no; it's fine. Um, <laughs> okay. So I see, like, um, when you talk about robotics, and for example, Westworld is about robots um, or kind of artificial humans, almost. Um, we do you see maybe in a couple of years' time, or or something that we could do now? is have uh, an embodied um, AI situation. So using a lot of the uh, IBM cloud services, embodying some of that into a robot, which could be useful and do sorts of, all sorts of tasks. Yeah, Go. as a matter of fact, I, I know of a number of initiatives, even internally, to do that. Um, mm. there, there's even one called Intu, I-N-T-U, and it, this isn't an endorsement or anything, but if you're interested, you can check it out. That talks about embodied cognition. Right. Uh, specifically, I mean, I think that's the purpose of the project, yep. is to put Watson in, in different form factors 
and and have it interact with other people the way that we do, like talking, just you know, articulated limbs, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there that that's entirely possible. We certainly have robots in the world now. I mean, there was um, I can't believe I'm blanking on it. There's like a security robot that looks like a giant. What, what is the shape? I don't know. Right. Uh, an ellipsis, you know, a half yeah. ellipsis almost. Um, and that that is internet connected. I believe it relies on a few cloud-based APIs um, mm-hmm. and some onboard algorithms uh, that are local to basically okay. patrol and look for uh, anomalies and report them if it sees them. It doesn't, of course, tase anybody or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's an interesting step, though, um, that it's... Yeah. And we all have Roombas and stuff like that. I mean, I don't have a Roomba, but a lot of people yeah. do. <clears throat> do people like their Roombas? I didn't like one when I had it because yeah. it, it didn't clean everything. <laughs> and it got stuck. But <laughs> That's they've the probably whole... progressed since then. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole point, right? Um, I have so. something called a Cosmo, which purports to have an onboard algorithm. It's a little toy that you can teach tricks. And that's interesting. Yeah. My dogs are scared of it. <laughs> but um, I mean, you know, the real use is going to come later, probably. Yeah. Is that something that's supposed to be for kids? or? Um, it is. Yeah. yeah. So. It, it's almost like a, a way that you can teach them programming. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. Um do you, I mean, do you personally or do you kind of at IBM work with a group of um, people talking about ethics or, or or kind of like the impact of some of the software um, that you're creating at the moment? I am, that's that's like a passion area for me yeah. uh, personally. So yeah, I, I, I work with, talk with, have meetings about and, mm-hmm. and just sort of daydream about the, the, these, these issues. I'm very interested in and and concerned about them, yeah. And it's an interesting yeah. time to be involved in artificial intelligence and, and, and considering the ethics of that. Also, as it pertains to VR and AR, which I'm also heavily involved in, yep. there's a lot of questions about uh, AR, VR ethics. Is it okay to track a person's body position, uh, to understand where their eyes are looking, you know, if they just sign a EULA? Really interesting stuff. Yeah, I mean, given the fact that their data might leave the system and go off into the cloud and get processed, is that... Is that the reason, right? Yeah, you could potentially yeah. like have a have a unique biometric impression of a person and understand, like with one hundred percent accuracy, that that could only be them playing this virtual reality experience at this time. That's a little bit invasive. Yeah, I mean a lot invasive. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. Um, but in terms of AI and, and the ethics, um, yeah. I mean, I guess, what what are you talking about specifically? Um, I mean, because we've talked to a lot of people um, about some of this stuff, and it's really good to hear kind of like from uh, a personal level that you're really interested. But is there kind of an IBM level sort of um, thing that they are uh, interested in in this uh, sphere of thinking, I guess? Well, I mean, we have a very policy for our users around how they can use it and for what. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, we... Um, you know, we do we do typical things like we don't allow uh, illegal activities that we that we can be aware of to to go on, and that that's that becomes a complex issue very very quickly as you yeah. as you go you know as you're a global company and what's legal in one country may not be legal in another one. But then you got to then then you got to figure maybe and here's an example I think of a lot because it comes up a lot. Um, caller spam, uh, you know, sort of these. Um, these auto dialing schemes yeah. and using things like speech to text for stuff like that. It may be legal to do that in a country like Pakistan or something, but from there to call people in the United States is not legal uh, using that method. And so where does the, you know, mm. w- on which side 
would IBM get in trouble? It was more likely to get in trouble. Well, it's you know it's a U.S. company, and uh, yep. of course you have to blah blah blah. So these these are all you know this is sort of the matrix of how complex it gets. But there are a great many people in the company constantly trying to stay on top of that so that we don't have to be reactive. And obviously there's also the press issue. So our, our marketing and our comms are um, very uh, um, very much on top of you know what 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 is going on somewhere in the world, and they're, mm -hmm. they're in contact with make sure that you know they can help make their jobs easier yeah i mean that's super interesting that you have this kind of um legal requirement to fulfill but also it's kind of on you to fulfill the desire of the particular product and its use so that's right you can that's almost right. flip it the other way around and go actually we kind of want it to be used in this way so we're going to yeah. kind of say you guys can't do this with this product because that's not the direction we want for it right uh, and that, that actually is up to each individual product owner. So if you own right. visual Watson Visual Recognition mm -hmm. and you don't want visual recognition being used to recognize the location of nukes yep. around the world, you know, or whatever. I, this is a silly example. I have no <laughs> idea. Um, you know, that's up to you to build that into your, when a user, you know, provisions their key, mm -hmm. um, they're, they're your terms of service. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Don't uh, track nukes. Don't track nukes. Is <laughs> <laughs> Uh, are, they, I'm sure are you, are you kind of presuming that people read those things, or um, is this no, no? <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, that's I like mean, an aside, isn't it? Really? Um, yeah, that that's a problem. I, I, yeah. I agree that that's a real problem. I don't. There, there needs to be law changes in order to solve that problem. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and probably you could solve the legal issue if there was kind of more of a unified uh, global uh, legal situation. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, that that's like an idealist speaking here. Um, hey, one day you, you sound like a trucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll we'll sort it out, won't we, Michael? Um, what are you worried about in the future? Um, predominantly to do with AI, and subsequently, what is it that really excites you about this technology? So, speaking as myself, uh, what worries me about AI in the future is that. It is seemingly more and more likely that large multinational corporations will provide AI as a service uh, to people. Mm -hmm. And this is going to sound strange, but I think the competition is good, and I would like to see more open source efforts. So I give a talk on artificial intelligence, and when we define terms, one of the things I talk about is the different uh, ways in which companies are doing this in the market right now. And, yep. and there's a cloud-based approach, which us and other companies like Google, Microsoft, Amazon are doing it. Um, and, and that's, you know, hey, we have these advanced functionality APIs that would take you forever to build and maintain. Mm. Um, just make an API called super cheap. It's like 0 0.002 cents, and you'll get all this amazing functionality. It's very typical API platform stuff. People do it all the time. You know, you're not going to build your own mapping system if you're making an app. You're yep. going to use Google's or somebody's. Um, if you want to, you know, make an app for iOS, you have to use Apple's APIs to use things like their picker menu, selector thing, things native to their OS. So this stuff is is typical that companies do this. But um, another method is locally trained, you know, algorithms that you build yourself using TensorFlow or another open source solution like that. Yep. That'll get you basic functionality, and you got to consider the long term maintenance cost. Um, and it's a very long time to get to even like you know a, a functional hello world. Uh, in certain mm -hmm. cases, but you can do things like computer vision, speech recognition, and if you don't, if if you don't have internet, uh, you know, obviously that's your only option. But there are a number of reasons why having an onboard, low, 
local uh, algorithm makes sense um, in certain circumstances. But another solution that I just mentioned is, is open source. So uh, companies like H2O.ai and Algorithmia, Algorithmia mm-hmm. these are open source machine learning algorithm marketplaces. And you can, you can take one for free, like, like H2O.ai has a great uh, computer vision um, uh, algorithm. But uh, in order to get the most benefit, they've built service layers around these things. So it's like, yeah, you can have this, but well, if you get it integrated into your system quickly and get all this advanced functionality, just sign here on the dotted line. And I would mm-hmm. actually like to see that business model proved out. Um, I don't know if it will, <laughs> yeah. but I think that that provides a very necessary and healthy counterbalance to the other two approaches I just mentioned. Yeah, because that's 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 uh, something I've not seen yet that much of actually. Yeah. That's uh, mostly the cloud um, sort of situation. Yeah, yeah, and there and there are certainly a lot of benefits to that. Um, I'm yeah. not doing that at all. I mean, there's certain things you can only do if you use something from the Watson Developer Cloud, for example. Yeah. Um, but. But uh, and another thing that I worry about is just the, the imagination. Like, hey, if you're listening to this, let's imagine a future where you know artificial intelligence is doing things that we want. Like, would you like to live longer? Would you like to not have that disease? Would you like to end wars or poverty or or, or you know hunger? These are the sorts of big problems that artificial intelligence uniquely has the potential to solve. And it's kind of amazing that that's the case. It's not just about nuclear war and how it can be abused by powerful people. Um, it's also how it can reduce powerful people's ability to abuse that power as well. Um, so I, I would just encourage everybody to go imagine a, a future that's not all about killer robots being our enemies. <laughs> because that's being done and it's exciting and interesting as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's almost kind of like, what, you know, what is going to be interesting, exciting, weird, different, hard in a world which does have maybe people living longer or you know, yeah. uh, curing cancers and, and all this stuff. Um, there's, there's bound to be many more stories in there as well, which we should all explore. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Um, but thank you for, for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you for spending time with us and um, sharing your ideas, thoughts and uh, bits from IBM with us. Um, if people want to kind of follow you, how do they do that? Uh, Twitter or LinkedIn. So on Twitter, I'm Michael underscore Ludden. My last name is spelled like sudden with an L um, and then on LinkedIn you can just you know type in my name to search bar Michael Levin it should come up yep sweet um, and we you've got some have you got any talks coming up um, uh, I do yes that people I do I have one in you. Seattle um, if anybody's based in Seattle coming up next Thursday on the 17th I'm gonna be giving a talk called uh, I'd normally talk called AI and VR, but this is called Star Trek Bridge Crew, Artificial Intelligence and Virtual Reality. They kind of right. jazz the title up, I suppose. Yeah. Um, then I've got a number of them coming up, but that's the next one. Yeah. So if you're in Seattle, come check that out. Sweet. Cool. Uh, thanks very much for your time, Michael. Thank you. Bye-bye.